everybody. I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we're getting super sciencey and exploring examples of biomimicry. Plus our first ever Patreon produced fun fulper fact. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. So as mentioned, today we are getting super sciencey, aka nerdy AF, but I'm super excited about it <laughs> um, because we are going to be digging into a few examples of cetacean-inspired innovation, also known as biomimicry. So if you aren't familiar with that term, biomimicry basically means something that we use in maybe not your everyday life, but in human life. So it could be an example of technology. It could be an example of an approach to problem solving. Uh, it could be an engineering practice, but something that we use in human life that was inspired by nature. It could be kind of a direct copy of something that's used in nature, but then human fabricated, or it could be inspired by nature, as we're going to talk about the examples that we have for you today. The best example, I think, every one of our listeners will be familiar with when it comes to biomimicry is Velcro. <laughs> so <laughs> probably all of us have used Velcro at some point in our lives. And Velcro was inspired by, I don't remember who the name is of the person who actually invented Velcro. I read it when preparing George for this podcast. George Velcro. <laughs> Let's say that. I know it. Actually, I was surprised. I didn't write it in our show notes, unfortunately. So that's why I forget. But I was surprised. His name isn't Velcro. So I don't know where the name Velcro came from. <laughs> But uh, it's like a trademarky brand name. There we go. Hook and loop closure is what the technology is called, but we know it as Velcro most of the time. It's inspired by Burrs and the gentleman whose name I'm forgetting who invented it. He was trying to remove Burrs from his dog's fur, as lots of us probably have in our lives. I know I certainly <laughs> We have from my dog who's, who's long gone. He always used to get into the burrs out at the beach. And he, instead of just being frustrated by the, you know, tedious task of trying to remove burrs from a dog who does not like having that happen, he said, hmm, these burrs are stuck very well to my dog's fur. I think I can stick other things to other things <laughs> using the same inspired technique. Ah. And Velcro was born. Oh, he was evil. <laughs> he was waiting for the appropriate moment to drop an Aaron Burr reference and <laughs> sing a little song, but if he's evil, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't think he was evil. Velcro's a pretty great invention. Oh, we're already off the rails and we're only three minutes in. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Regardless, Velcro is probably the best known example of biomimicry, though I'm going to bet that some of you, our listeners, didn't know that it was inspired by nature, which is why it is called biomimicry, that it came from the bird and not the Aaron bird. <laughs> All of us Sir. have been watching a lot of Hamilton. <laughs> I thought you were going to say too much and then I was going to correct you. But. No, there's no such thing. So what we have for you today is we have grabbed a few different examples of biomimicry that come from the cetacean world. There are actually quite a few. And so this may become a recurring segment on our podcast here and there, not segment, but a recurring discussion. And Sarah, can you give us the first and maybe also most obvious example? Yes. Okay, our first example is sonar, which is similar to echolocation in bats and dolphins. Uh, I didn't find any solid evidence that the initial invention of sonar was inspired by what bats and dolphins do, but it was initially done as a way of passive listening under the water to locate things. Um, there was also these things called underwater bells that were used as a sort of underwater equivalent of a lighthouse. Um, the initial burst of innovation around sonar was ended up in the early 1900s, although there had been experiments such as these underwater bells and passive listening to detect items underwater as far back as da Vinci. Uh, use of sonar in commercial and military applications really picked up in World War I, though when obviously there was a lot of pressure and incentive to detect uh, submarines and other things under the water. 
Also, the Titanic disaster was another big inspiration for increased use and innovation of sonar uh, to be able to better detect the underwater parts of icebergs. Okay, sonar as we use the term now is the use of sound underwater to detect and visualize objects. Super useful if you are a dolphin and super useful if you are a fishing vessel trying to find some fish and also lots of other uses. If you've um, even been on a small fishing boat, some of them have these like sounders that then show you little 8-bit eight eight fish cartoons of um, fish under the water. Uh, that's a pretty common example that most people would have seen. There's two main types of sonar. There's active sonar, where you make a noise like a ping and then wait to hear what it sounds like when it comes back. And then there's passive sonar, where you just listen for the sounds that other things make without transmitting any of your own sounds. In both those cases, the returning sounds are then transferred to some sort of visual representation. But one newer aspect to sonar that we do know that has been inspired by dolphins is a recently invented improvement called Twin Inverted Pulse Sonar, or TWIPS. <laughs> it was a research at Southampton at the UK's National Oceanography Centre named Professor Timothy Layton. Uh, he and his team were trying to study the use of sonar in shallow waters. So initially in World War I, and even throughout World War II and the Cold War, the main uses of sonar were in deep waters. But more recently, there's been attempts to get sonar to work in shallower waters. But the waves and the surface activity mean that the water is much more bubbly, and the bubbles disrupt and confuse the sonar. But what Leighton and his team observed was that dolphins are able to use sonar in bubbly waters, and even when they intentionally blow bubble nets to disrupt and confuse their prey, they are still using echolocation. So basically, they decided that if dolphins could do it, that means it's physically possible for us to figure out a way to get sonar to work in these highly disturbed waters. Uh, instead of looking at how dolphins would, were doing it, because uh, that would be pretty complicated, and also these were like sound engineers and researchers, not dolphin researchers, they used mathematical models and came up with the TWIPS system. Basically, the first pulse gets sent out, and then a fraction of a second later, a second pulse is sent out, and the two pulses are identical except inverted from each other. This then works to enhance the target while at the same time suppressing any disturbance from the bubbles. And then in some later tests, they found that it performs better than standard sonar as well in situations such as the wake of a large vessel. So I guess the question we're all wondering, is this the same way that dolphins do it? And the answer is not really. Some aspects of the TWIP system can be found in different dolphin species, but not altogether in one species. So it seems like they kind of inadvertently picked sort of the best or the most doable by the instruments that they have uh, ways to do sonar in shallow waters and then inadvertently have found sort of the different ways that dolphins do it. Um, it all assembles in a different way. I love that. I love just, like, looking at something a dolphin can do and being like, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's kind of arrogant, but it's also just using the knowledge that because dolphins can do it, that means that physically it's possible. So then if we just invent a way to make, like, the physical side of things happen, then we can improve our technology because of our inspiration from animals. Sure. So we're sticking with dolphins for a little while. And this next example is also inspired by dolphin sound, but in particular, looking at the way that dolphins encode their vocal communication. So when we think about sound underwater, uh, a lot of people who've studied it, even in sort of like high school studies, you know that sound travels, sound waves in particular, they travel very, very long distances through water as a medium. And that sounds great because it means that you can produce a sound much further away underwater and it'll be heard much further away than it would be with all other things being equal if it was on land in terms of distance. However, in practice, there's actually quite a lot of disturbance and destruction that can happen to the sound waves as they travel through the water. So they can reverberate against each other and uh, with the extra bouncing of the sound in the actual waves instead of just the sound waves, it can start to deteriorate the sound itself. And so when it gets to its destination, it's not always... It's like playing telephone. 
basically. Yeah. What you hear isn't exactly what Susie said when she first started the telephone message. It said Dolph- she liked Mark. <laughs> Instead, it's that she liked Andre, and then it was a whole big thing. Oh my god, I liked Andre. <laughs> so much drama. Uh, unless you're a dolphin, dolphins never make that mistake. They always know who they like. <laughs> it's everybody. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Dolphins are able to recognize the actual intent of the message in their vocal communication up to 25 kilometers away from its origin or from its starting destination, which is insane. (laughs) And one of the ways that they're able to do this is because they actually encode uh, through constant, how do I want to say this? They encode by repeating frequencies in their vocal communication so that even if one frequency is distorted as it travels, the fact that it's basically like repeating, it's kind of a sandwich. If you think of a visual of a dolphin's vocalization, it's a sandwich of the message they're trying to, they're trying to communicate. We don't have a dolphin dictionary. We don't know what they're saying most of the time. But this is best studied when it comes to what we call their signature whistles, or uh, a lot of people refer to this as a dolphin's name for each other. So bottlenose dolphins in particular have been studied extensively, and they have signature whistles to refer to each individual within their group or their pod. And we kind of extrapolate from that 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 is the dolphin's name when referred to by other dolphins. And so if you study a picture of a signature whistle, it's the same message repeated over and over and over again on top of each other. So that as it travels, yes, maybe layer one, two, and 10 all get distorted, but three to nine are still there and are able to be communicated and understood by the recipient dolphin up to 25 kilometers away. Super, super cool. What this has inspired is also super, super cool, a company called Evologics has actually developed an underwater modem to transmit data about seismic sounds in tectonic plates in the Indian Ocean to inform people about possible tsunamis using this inspiration for encoding multiple layers of the same, effectively like the same message in each transmission through sound traveling through the water. So Evologics has developed what they are calling a high performance underwater modem, and it is being used as the early warning system for tsunamis all throughout the Indian Ocean. All because dolphins can tell each other who they like 25 kilometers away from each other. (laughs) I'm looking at you, Andre. Lindsay, can you <laughs> Sorry, tell us? Sorry, I got a... distracted thinking about Andre the dolphin. <laughs> can you tell us uh, about another and our final for today example of cetacean inspired biomimicry? Yes, even though I love Andre, we're not going to talk about dolphins anymore. They're silly. Um, talking... <laughs> silly little dolphins. Silly little dolphins. We're going to talk about humpbacks, pectoral flippers, and how they give wind. <laughs> do that on purpose uh, to more efficient wind turbines see there's the joke gentle listeners you didn't know what was going on um, so many of our modern aerodynamic designs rely on basic principles um, I don't know anything about wind turbines so I'm just going to read what Nicole thoughtfully prepared for me um, to obtain optimal lift and minimal drag in turbines Sleek edges and clean lines are key. Sounds like a wind turbine commercial. Um, However, in the animal kingdom, many species are capable of exceptional lift, like the humpback whale uses their bumpy um, turbicle fins for propulsion. Turbicles are the little bumps. You can see we'll put um, some pictures on our social. They're on their um, head, but they're also, you can find them along their pectoral flippers. Um, So that seems kind of counterintuitive as to what we've designed uh, for humans for those kinds of things. So a a humpback whale pectoral flipper is not. No. Humpbacks, 
like they're not really that sleek. The ability to launch themselves out of the water also seems counterintuitive when you look at what we use to do something similar. Um, so a Harvard-led research team has determined that these nodules, the turbicles, enabled the whale to choose a steeper angle of attack, um, <laughs> which is the angle between the flow of water and the face of the flipper. Um, with humpbacks, these this attack angle can be up to 40% steeper than a smooth flipper. Due to these small ridges on their flipper, section sectional stalls occur at different points along the fin, which makes a full-on stall much easier to avoid. That kind of makes sense. The flipper moves easier, and there's a less chance of the flipper going, Err! Nope, no win for you today. Um, <laughs> no jumping. No jumping. You don't get to show off to the, that lady humpback. So, tests conducted by the U.S. Navy Naval Academy using monoflippers, which seems ridiculous. Now I'm just imagining scientists in their lab coats with, like, flippers moving them around. <laughs> Like, in their lab. But they had to have lab coats on, otherwise it doesn't count as science. Not real science. <laughs> exactly. So, these tests determined that the biomimetric fins reduced drag by nearly a third and improved lift by 8% overall, which is pretty impressive. Uh, Whale Power, a company based in Toronto, has already capitalized on this turbicle uh, technology. According to MIT, Whale Power... Biometric bla- biomimetric blades have helped generate biomimetic blades help generate the same amount of power at 10 miles per hour um, that conventional turbines generate at 17 miles per hour, which is pretty good and it's pretty impressive and super helpful for wind turbine and wind energy. Go humpbacks. Go whale power. <laughs> yeah, we've got the best name. So those are just three examples of biomimicry, uh, and we were really fascinated by this and hope to discuss more examples in future episodes. Thank you, Sarah. And before we move on to the rest of our podcast, we just wanted to take a quick moment to thank all of you for listening, but of course, to also especially thank our patrons. What's a Patreon? How do you become a patron? Well, I'm glad you asked. Patreon is a site where for as little as a dollar a month, you can support your favorite creators or you can support us for uh, the work that they do. Our Patreon is at patreon.com slash whaletales. And Lindsay's going to tell you a little bit more about the perks you get in exchange for supporting us on Patreon. So we have a couple of different tiers um, and different ways you can help. So you could start at a dollar a month or the corpus level. Um, and in that way, you get a newsletter with some fun updates, and you can also vote in uh, some of our polls for fun poker facts that we have and help us choose some episode subjects. For our middle level, which is $5 a month, or the dolphin tier, uh, we have all of those things, plus you got a hand-painted logo postcard painted by our very own Nicole, and um, some discounts on our awesome merch. And in the $10 level, I don't know if you can guess what this tier is called, um, you get all of those things, plus a hand-painted watercolor above a humpback whale, also painted by our Nicole Can. And you get to um, pick a topic and produce an entire fun flipper fact, which is very awesome. And anything that you can give us, yes, I know it's it's especially a hard time to give people money right now, but anything you can give us, if it's possible, is great to help us continue doing what we do, both with the podcast and Whale Tales in general. Um, it doesn't cost much, but much for what we do, but it still costs something. <laughs> so <laughs> any help is great. And thank you just for listening in general. Absolutely. Uh, all three of us, as we've said before, we all have other full-time jobs. Whale Tales is a labor of love in and amongst the 17 million other things that the three of us have going on in our lives. So the fact that we have any patrons at all is just so incredibly gratifying and humbling to all of us. But even beyond that, because we do know that uh, it's really, really hard to give money at this time, especially, but it's hard all the time. Money is very valuable. We understand that. The fact that any of you are listening is just really and truly the greatest 
the greatest joy that the three of us can have for for the work that we put into Whale Tales. We had a piece of feedback come in this week that Lindsay Lindsay's the one who always receives our feedback, and we have a group text going on every day. And there was a piece of feedback this week from a listener in the UK who listens to our podcast on her commute, and for lines and lines and lines in our group text after reading that feedback, it was just heart eyes and oh, and, oh I love our listeners, and it's really wonderful. So if you aren't able to become a patron, we do understand, but we would love to hear from you. And we would love if you could leave us a review on whatever podcast app you listen to us or send us your direct feedback, because we would love to hear what you think about our podcast and also to hear how we can make it even better for you. Yeah. And nothing makes Nicole happier than having people tell her that they like when she sings. So (laughs) that's on you people. True, which brings us to fun flipper fact, fact, fact. It's time for fun flipper facts. Yeah, and today's fun flipper fact is our very first Patreon produced fun flipper fact. Our question to be answered in today's fun flipper fact comes from our patron Dorothy, and she asks, Why can't all researchers use the same name for the same humpback whale. <laughs> that is the short answer for Dorothy. Uh, she is referring to the fact that whether it is a nickname or in more cases, an ID system or a classification name, an alphanumeric number to identify a humpback whale, particularly in the Pacific Ocean, because the three of us know more about the identification and research of humpback whales in the Pacific Ocean, though from some quick research this past month, turns out this is a problem everywhere for humpbacks and likely for most migratory species. There are multiple systems of cataloging and tracking these animals because they're studied by either multiple research institutions or in the humpbacks case, multiple countries of research origin with multiple research institutions working within that country. It's insane. So Dorothy, great question. And the answer is really what Lizzie said. (laughs) It would be too easy. In other words, it costs too much. So we'll dig into this a little bit. We are focusing our fun flipper fact answer today on the Pacific humpback whale, which Dorothy was asking about in her question, but you can really extrapolate all of the answers that I have for you as to why this is so hard for researchers to basically any species that travels anywhere, which is, you know, spoiler alert, most whales and dolphins and porpoises (laughs) Uh, anywhere in the world. In BC, Individual humpback whales are given an alphanumeric identifier that starts with BC. Huh, go figure, because they were first seen in BC. But hey, as we know, no humpback whales as of yet have, to our knowledge, been born in BC. So they didn't originate here. It just happens to be where they were seen first by a BC researcher. So you're starting to get a picture of the kind of like narrow telescoped focus going on here with with research and with cataloging. So BC humpbacks are given an identifier that starts with BC and then it is either BC X, BC Y, or BC Z number. The X, the Y, and the Z uh, correspond to the amount of white to be seen on the fluke or the tail fin of a humpback whale. If it's a BCX individual, the amount of white on their fluke is zero to 20%. So flukes, if you look at a picture, and I'm sure we'll put some up on social end and link in the, so- the show notes here, humpback whales flukes are as unique as human fingerprints. That's why they're used to identify this particular species. And they are some combination of dark gray to navy blue and white. So an animal that has a predominantly dark fluke will be a BCX animal. An animal that has 20 to 80%, big wide range there, <laughs> 20 to 80% uh, of white on their fluke is a BCY individual. 
And then if it's a mostly white, so 80 to 100% white fluke, it's a BCZ. We are in Canada, so we say Z, hey, <laughs> a BCZ individual. And then after that, it's like BCX0001 or BCX152 or whatever. The number is basically just like the next individual that's going to be classified as a BCY. Yeah, this, so f- sorry, for yeah. just for example, Big Mama, the most famous humpback or at least one of them in bc is bcy0324 so she has two big kind of chunks kind of like eyes a little bit of white on the tips of her flukes um if you google her or go to her uh, very own page on our website you can see many of her fluke photos so she definitely falls in the y probably um in the less almost 20 30 percent of white but um that's just a good example of what these numbers what these ids kind of look like yeah and you can actually find the entire catalog of bc humpbacks so any humpbacks that have been identified by bc researchers and start with that bc x y or z for their alphanumeric identifier uh we'll have this link in our show notes but it's wildwhales.org no dashes in there just wildwhales.org and you can find the whole catalog for free So that's great. Thank you to the researchers who have worked so hard. There are numerous, numerous research organizations, many of whom are friends of the podcast, who have worked really, really hard to put together that catalog for BC-identified humpback whales. But... So... Oh, go for it. Sorry. Just before we move on, um, can you confirm, similar to Southern residents and Northern residents naming as opposed to the bigs, the caps of uh, humpbacks are not given a number that's in any way linked to their mothers. Uh, from what I could tell, no. The nomenclature for the identifier for BC catalog humpbacks and also for Alaskan catalog humpbacks, which I'm about to get to, seems to be entirely based on fluke and coloration okay. of fluke. Okay, cool. So then we come to Alaska. Oh, Alaska. As we know, humpback whales are born near the equator, uh, whether it's in North Pacific humpbacks, as we're, as we're talking about, whether it's in Hawaii or the Gulf of Mexico or some other unique individual populations kind of go a little bit further out in the North Pacific Ocean slash Equatorial Pacific at that point in time. But they do travel huge distances and the same individual humpback is going to be seen in Hawaii, in California, in Oregon, in Washington, in BC, and then all the way up to Alaska. In Alaska, humpback whales are cataloged by and are identified based on, very similar to in BC, the amount of white prevalent on their fluke. However, it is in no way tied to the way that they are cataloged in like in terms of the number or their their alphanumeric identifier to how they're cataloged in BC and they have to travel through BC to get to Alaska. <laughs> so we will also have a link in the show notes to the Alaskan humpback catalog that I could find which I will say again the entire catalog is available for free amazing thank you Alaskan researchers again numerous numerous organizations going into the research and the creation and development of that catalog they have gone even more uh, specific with their percentages than the x y and z the bc has there are one two three four five six different ways of kind of cataloging the amount of white on a fluke for the alaskan catalog there is the 100 to 75 percent white fluke group there is the 75 to 50 percent white group there is the 50 percent to 25 percent white group And then there is the 25% or less white group. And then there are two groups for they have a completely dark fluke, no white on it at all. However, one of those groups is no white, but with a narrow notch, which is the middle of the fluke, sort of where the two lovely little lady curves or non-ladies, if you're a male humpback, (laughs) come from the middle of the fluke. So 0% white with a narrow notch or 0% white with a wide notch. What is interesting about this catalog is though it's organized by percentage of white and then also sort of the size of the notch of the fluke, 
every humpback in this catalog is just given a number. There's no AK <laughs> to recognize that it's an Alaskan humpback. There's no X, Y, or Z or anything like that to recognize where they fall within the, the category of how much white is on their fluke. It's just, uh, from what I could tell, I, I freely admit I did not contact an Alaskan humpback whale researcher in preparation for this podcast, which would have been doing my extra due diligence. I admit that. But from what I could tell from while I was researching online, it's just like a random number, maybe based on like newest member of the population, newest whale to be identified. And then it's just put in the section of the catalog where it fits based on how much white is on its fluke. That sounds chaotic. <laughs> it is. At least it's available for free. So, so far, what we're getting at is that if you are a person who has a picture of a humpback whale that you saw in either BC or Alaska, you can actually try and identify that animal decently easily if you have a good picture because the BC catalog and the Alaskan catalogs are available online for free. Now, my friends, if you had a picture of a humpback whale that was taken in Hawaii, I am sorry, you are out of luck. <laughs> I spent over a week and a half of whatever spare time I had trying to find any, even a paid catalog of humpback whale flukes for humpbacks that were first identified in Hawaii, the other main, main geographical region where North Pacific humpback whale research is taking place. All I could find as a general human trying to look at humpback whale pictures based in Hawaii was reference to the North Pacific Humpback Fluke Database Catalog, which is managed by the National Marine Mammal Laboratory in Seattle, uh, primarily affiliated with NOAA. But that is not a, even though it's referenced by many, many Hawaiian research organizations, there is no National Marine Mammal Laboratory Seattle NOAA webpage that I could find that is currently active and nowhere to even request access as sort of a layman coming at it from, from Google's perspective, access to this North Pacific Humpback Fluke database catalog. So I clearly need to have some kind of research credentials to be able to access even the request for information for that. So I cannot tell you how humpback whales in Hawaii are cataloged, but I can tell you that it's yet again going to be different than how they are cataloged in BC and even how they are sometimes cataloged in Alaska, though it is the same country. So just looking at those three main areas of research, and we do say main because we know that valuable, valuable research is going on in California, Oregon, and Washington with humpback whales, and in Russia as well, because some of these North Pacific humpbacks actually travel over to, to the Russian country as well and to that continent. It's crazy hard. It's crazy, crazy hard to try and figure out how you can track an individual animal through multiple countries worth of research. And this, as some of our faithful listeners might remember from our origin episode of the podcast, is actually one of the things that first inspired me for the need for something like whale tales, where we could keep track of stories of animals, because what's happening to them in all of the different places they travel on their migration is really, really important to get a clearer understanding of what's happening to the species as a whole. Thankfully, whale tales is not the only organization working on that understanding. The most comprehensive study that has ever been attempted from our, from our knowledge to try and actually figure out how to <laughs> combine all of those different research catalogs into one catalog was the Splash Project, which ran from 2004 to 2006. And Lindsay, I believe you were a part of this. Not officially. Not officially. I did it but... as um, kind of an honors part in my project for my marine mammals um, course in Banfield when we did uh, we did humpback flukes and we made a catalog for the animals that we saw in Quaquat Sound and the surrounding areas. 
Um, and then we worked with a couple of other researchers who are around to look at their flukes and to add them and to try and find as many ident- humpback uh, ID numbers as possible. Um, this was right when Splash was ending, but the report wasn't out. Um, also, it was 2006, so the internet existed, <laughs> but Facebook did not. So it was much harder to reach out to people. It was literally us asking someone to ask someone to ask someone. Um, and a lot of these images are also used, uh, taken under permit for government research and stuff like that. So it's harder to get them than you would might expect when you're mm-hmm. a bright-eyed 22-year-old <laughs> uh, who just wants to make one big catalog to make life easier. Um, so, uh, yeah. So we did that a bit, and then because we got stalled out by... Basically, by people saying they couldn't give us their images, we weren't able to get anywhere. Which, like, we had, I don't even know, 50 humpbacks? Maybe a bit more, because it was Clayquot Sound and we were there for six weeks, as opposed to all of the Pacific Ocean. But... (laughs) (laughs) um, We tried. Yeah. Yeah. So you, we actually have included in in the show notes here the everything that we could find about the splash project which stood for structure and population levels of abundance and status of humpback whales in the north pacific that it splash was just a really great acronym that was put together (laughs) and included in the show notes here is the report on the work that was done from 2004 to 2006 with the help of over 50 research groups in four countries with 400 researchers involved and their students, like Lindsay, to identify 7,971 unique individual humpback whales. That's a lot of tail flukes. It's pretty amazing. And the splash catalog of those almost 8,000 individual humpback flukes still exists. It's still available and you can find it in our show notes, or you can just search www.splashcatalog.org. And what I think is maybe a little ironic about the splash catalog, because if you read the full report that the splash project put out, it details so many of the issues that we have alluded to already about like why this is actually so 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 hard to do and why even though we all know that it's the same individual humpback that's going to be seen in Mexico and then seen in the U.S. and then seen in Canada and then seen in the U.S. again and then maybe seen in Russia trying to collect all of that research is so hard. Uh, The other thing that I think is a little bit ironic about the project is that the catalog they created of those almost 8,000 individuals also all have again a new number. (laughs) Yep. So, for example, an animal that is cataloged in Splash that is seen in its primary migratory route of Hawaii to through mainland United States, up through BC and up to Alaska, could have a Splash number, a Hawaiian number, which I can't find, a BC number, and an Alaskan number. Not to mention countless nicknames based on all of the different researchers and whale watch institutions that see that whale. It is an incredibly complicated issue, but an important one for us to not get bogged down by and for us to continue to work to solve because the really and truly the only way that researchers are ever going to be able to enact serious change for and governments are going to be able to enact serious change for a species if you can look at its entire life its its entire migratory route and and try and enact change throughout that entire span so thankfully that is something that numerous numerous projects and organizations are trying to do and one of our really really special friends of the site and friends of the podcast happy whale which is a community science organization that is looking to do just that where you can update your sorry where you can upload your picture of any cetacean and they have crazy cool algorithms that will help to figure out if that's a cetacean individual regardless of species that has ever been identified on their site before and to date this is on their homepage of their website and it updates 
every day. So today I pulled this number. Happy Whale has been able to identify 41,370 unique individual cetaceans. So visit Happy Whale, share your pictures with Happy Whale, and of course, share your pictures and your stories with us here at Whale Tales. Yeah, and one of the best parts about Happy Whale is they will give it a number, ironically, but it's it's really to count the number of animals they've identified. But if they're able to identify your whale and they can't find a match for it, it just gets a happy whale number, but it's been identified in there and now it's in a catalog. So if you're the first person to have this fluke picture and then somebody else, potentially a researcher, gets this fluke picture and submits it to happy whale, they will then know that you saw this whale and you will be a part of this whale getting a scientific identification number um the other part about happy well that i love so much is that they try and list all the id numbers that they know about so if you go to big mama's happy whale page you have her humpback or her happy whale number her bcy0324 she has another one um at least one other one um but they're all listed there so you're able to keep that straight all of her different spellings of big mama are listed there because nobody seems to be able to agree on that and you can see all of the sightings that she's done. So it helps track where she goes, which is really cool. We've had some sightings on uh, Happy Well of her being in Hawaii. You can see all the thing, all where she goes, all the sightings that have been um, submitted to Happy Well of this whale, as well as her family tree. And that help, they helped identify that she just had a grandbaby. So she's a grandma and she's a grandbig mama. So all of that's all of that stuff is on there. You can go to her page and you can go to her cat all of her different cast pages like and as we've talked about before, it's the Happy Well has lots and lots of different old old fluke pictures like scanned fluke pictures that are part of the Zooniverse, which is a community science website and you can go on there and help identify um, the identifying features of a humpback fluke, which are the two tips and then the part where the lady parts curve as Nicole. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in my brain today. (laughs) So those identifying those, which is literally you just clicking those features on the fluke picture helps submit that image to their algorithm and to their fancy computer APHIS CSI thing, um, which helps those old images, which are literally like scans from 1970, be updated, uploaded to their catalog and help identify animals and we can learn all sorts of things about these animals including their lifespans so yay Yay science science. yay science and thank you yay patrons thank you so much dorothy for that amazing fun fact question i hope that we have been able to answer it for you and if there's anyone else who would like to ask a question and produce their own fun flipper fact all you got to do is head on over to patreon slash whale tales and become a whale level supporter and you too can pick whatever you want for me to dig into. <laughs> yes, please keep it cetacean related for future fun flipper facts. We would love to get nerdy with you. Okay, so now it's time for a story from someone who hasn't talked enough. It's Nicole! <laughs> it's a Nicole heavy episode. Apologies all. And also a humpback heavy episode. I, I am joining us for story time today. There was a lot about humpbacks in this episode, and our story is humpback related as well. I have been reminiscing and going back through a lot of photos and trying to do some digital cleanup, as we've talked about on a couple of past episodes. And one of the things that I found that was provoking a lot of nostalgia for me was the first time I went whale watching in Monterey, California. All three of us have talked a lot on the podcast about our love for Monterey (laughs) and also our love for whale watching in Monterey, though in Lindsay and Sarah's case, maybe less so for the sea swells in Monterey. Um, obviously travel is, uh, very dangerous at the moment, uh, something to only be done if necessary. And, uh, especially travel within the States is something that we aren't advocating for on our episode today. We want everybody to first and foremost, stay safe. However, if you are lucky enough to live in Monterey, then I am giving you the side eye because I'm so (laughs) jealous. 
Um, yep, and there's just no whale watching opportunities up here. No, I know, <laughs> I know. We're very lucky too. We're very, very lucky. Very, very grateful. But the first time that I went whale watching in Monterey, I realized what a complete other level whale watching is down there compared to what I am used to and very lucky to have having uh, grown not grown up here but but lived for quite a long time in BC and worked as a whale watcher in BC especially in Vancouver I was used to traveling for an hour sometimes an hour and a half away from our harbor from our dock on our vessel before we actually found cetaceans to see and the first time I went whale watching in Monterey I had been out on the boat for less than five minutes <laughs> before the naturalist was like, humpbacks at two o'clock. <laughs> I just, I didn't even know what to do with myself. And then adding to that, the fact that there were over 40 individual humpbacks that we saw on our couple hour tour which was also another thing for me because I'm so used to whale watching in Vancouver at least being a full day commitment because you do have to sometimes travel quite far away and then you're with the animals for up to an hour and then you have quite a quite a long travel home so in just a couple of hours out in the bay which also you lose sight of land pretty quickly in the bay partly fog related partly it's very big it's a lot bigger than the bay I am used to in my backyard called English Bay which is what I think of when I think of a bay, Monterey is huge. And yeah, just being able to be completely surrounded, be in whale soup, basically everywhere that you looked, no matter what side you were on on the boat and, and whether you were looking far away or close by, there were humpbacks. It was, it was magical. It was like being in a poster. Um, and I was, I remember being so impressed by the amount of knowledge that our naturalist had on board because she knew something about each individual and that was that's a really special talent and that requires you know we we try really hard at whale tales to give naturalists the credit we feel they're due because we know how hard their jobs are and they may not be researchers but they're contributing to really important research and they are also inspiring the next generation and the current generations that are going to fund research and do research and continue to protect these animals and this naturalist on board that vessel was just such a great example of that because she could identify each individual that fluked in front of us and she could find them in her catalog, which was probably yet another different number. For them. <laughs> and she could tell us something about each of them. The whale that I remember the most from that trip, uh, I didn't ever get their ID number, but was a whale that was suffering from a spinal deformity known as scoliosis, a spinal deformity that I also happen to have. I have very mild scoliosis, but I remember feeling really kismet about this whale that had quite a pronounced spinal deformity and thinking man it's got to be really nice to have scoliosis and live in the ocean where you're weightless all the time <laughs> and you aren't suffering from chronic constant back pain though I do imagine it is also probably very hard for a whale or you know any animal to have scoliosis to have a spinal deformity but this was an a fully grown adult seemed to be doing pretty well was able to get a lot of weight packed on its body so was definitely able to find food somehow and I just I miss traveling guys mm, <laughs> really? I know I miss traveling I miss getting out on the water to see whales because uh, that's also not something that I'm able to do right now and I I'm so grateful to our storytellers, whether they are naturalist researchers or just someone who saw a whale once for being able to live vicariously through them with our whale tales. Oh, yay. Thanks for sharing, Nicole. Uh, that's a great story. Um, so we're almost to the end of our podcast, but we wanted to just check in with all of you listeners about um, the fact that it is Plastic Free July coming to an end. And just sort of check in on how we've been doing and hope, um, ask how you guys have been doing. Uh, I think for all of us, um, Plastic Free July isn't about actually being plastic free. It's just about um, doing your best and having a great deal of awareness around your use of disposable plastics, especially. So one thing for me that has been a big game changer this year and something that I feel so... 
lucky to have been a part of is um, back in, I think, March or April, I joined a program through a local farm uh, called a CSA or a Community Supported Agriculture Program. And what that means is every week I get a box of vegetables from a farm. Uh, the contents of the box change and it's sort of like um, a mystery box and it's a great surprise every week. Um, the uh, plastic benefit of this has been immense because the only packaging that I've gotten so far and it's been I don't know five or six weeks I think um, the only packaging I've gotten so far has been a few elastic bands holding together bunches of greens um, I've gotten potatoes and they just put them loose in my bin all that kind of stuff um, and I just I'm so thankful that I found out about this program found out about this farm um, and also that I had the financial ability to be able to pre-purchase 20 weeks of vegetables at the beginning of the season. Um, I know I'm in a really lucky position and it just, um, it feels really nice. And that's sort of been the biggest game changer for me um, with my plastic waste is I don't have any um, like bags for, um, you know, like pre prepackaged salads or, you know, random um, plastic wrapped uh, vegetables, hardly any. I wouldn't say I have none, but I have very few. Um, yeah, Lindsay, did you want to talk a bit about how things have been going for you? Yeah, so at the moment, I haven't been focusing on reducing my plastic specifically in July, mainly because I've been, I don't want to sound like I'm fancy, but I've been working on Plastic Free July for a couple of years now. So uh, I'm constantly looking at ways to reduce my plastic use and some of them work and some of them don't. So I actually have written quite a number of blogs and I wrote one about how to do Plastic Free July this year, much more difficult than normal. Um, but there's lots of different things that I've done all year round, which um, you can find a lot of them I talk about there. So this year I've just been kind of trying to think of ways to help people and share tips because one, it's something that you can do um, and not sit at home and think about the dumpster fire mm -hmm. um and to like it's it's still possible um it may seem impossible when you look at it on a grand scale but there's lots of things you can do that um to reduce your plastic that has no impact that COVID has no impact like shampoo bottles switching to hard shampoo or something like that but there's no safety issues when it comes to that as except for picking them up at whatever store you're using that's going to be the same regardless of whether you're buying a bottle of shampoo or a bar of shampoo. So stuff like that are things that you can think about. Um, but of course, as we've discussed in the past, also think about your other kinds of footprints. If you're going to be ordering a bamboo toothbrush online, as opposed to walking across the street and buying a plastic toothbrush, though just because there's not plastic in your bamboo toothbrush, there's still a giant footprint in the packaging and the packaging material. So buying a plastic toothbrush, um, that just costs the amount of stuff that to walk across the street might be better. So all of these kinds of things, just thinking about what you can do. Um, I know Nicole's going to talk about this a bit, but soft plastic recycling has stopped. And since March, in BC, I've used it stopped in, in BC, in BC, <laughs> in BC um, for the time being, I, I think you can drop it off at the depots, but I'm not sure. Um, but I have used since the middle of March, an entire one in closet full of soft plastic. So looking at that is a wake-up call. I always knew that I was using a lot of soft plastic, especially since we started being able to recycle it. Just the amount of garbage that I've been taking out has gone down a lot. And I will say that I've probably eaten a lot more chips <laughs> in the last <laughs> four and a half months than I normally would in four and a half months because I'm a comfort eater. <laughs> Um, that is so okay. <laughs> a lot of those are probably empty Cheeto bags, but it's still something to look at. And that's something that you can look at regardless of the time of year and the situation of the world is look at what you're throwing out, either compost, recycling, or actual garbage. Just look at it and be like, what of this can I change for the better? Um, yeah. Right. My turn. So I have been feeling really bad about Plastic Free July. Uh, I've been feeling really bad just about my footprint in general since COVID started. 
because a number, I, I maybe didn't realize prior to COVID that a number of the strategies that I come up with in our household and in our family to mitigate our footprint use and our, our particularly our waste were things that now aren't as accessible to us. And obviously no one, we didn't see COVID coming, but I have been really struggling with it. And in particular, because uh, slightly because of COVID and also uh, much more maybe because of the realities of my family's life, we are continuing to avoid going into the grocery store as much as possible and continue with something I've talked about on the podcast before, which is our grocery pickup service. Unfortunately, though, as I'd mentioned on the podcast before, I got really close to, well, not, I, <laughs> definitely not physically close, but also like I didn't, you know, know her boyfriend's name or anything, but I became on a first name basis with my personal shopper at Save On Foods. And I had been able to, I was really proud of the fact that I'd been able to work with her and then that that transferred to a number of other shoppers to be able to completely eliminate soft plastics from the Save On Food grocery pickup. Unfortunately, uh, due to COVID restrictions, and I completely understand this, so I'm not upset with Savon uh, or with Kim, my grocer, for any of this. They aren't able to do that, so they do still have to have plastic bags for the groceries that are going to then be brought out in the cart and put into the trunk of my car to protect themselves. And as we've said a couple of times in the podcast, we that's that has to be number one. You, your safety has to has to come first. What I have been able to do with Kim, though, to to try and mitigate the number of plastic bags for our, our household grocery order is I have been able to work with her through the sort of chat function on our shopping app to be able to say, like, I understand and appreciate you still have to put the groceries in the plastic bags so that they can be transferred safely into my car. You know that those groceries are going to go immediately into a tote in my car so I'm not going to then have to like carry each individual bag so what that means for you is you can like load up those bags yes you can put multiple frozen pizzas in the same bag because if the straps break once they're in my car I don't care <laughs> um so that's something that I'm still it's something I'm working through and I'm working with my family on and I don't have all the answers and I don't think any of us do but I think the fact that we struggle with it and the fact that we're open about it and the fact that we work together to support each other and, and help each other look for new ideas is that's the spirit of Plastic Free July and that's the spirit of environmentalism. And the, the one thing I will say I am really, really proud of is my two-year-old son who just celebrated his second birthday. He not only can say garbage, recycling, and compost, he knows what goes where and so that at least like he knows the different kinds of recycling that we have in our house and the compost and that's something I'm really proud of yay that's adorable <laughs> and the one other thing I will say with your single-use plastic regardless of if it's a coffee cup or if it's a mask is to dispose of it properly wishful recycling is incredibly harmful um, and causes a ton of actual recyclable material to be able to be put in the landfills. So know what you're doing when you recycle and compost, um, as well as dispose of all your uh, personal protective equipment uh, properly and safely. Um, there, Every day when I go running, I see probably five masks on the seawall for no reason. They're like right next to a garbage can. Um, and it bothers me for a lot of reasons, but... I can't pick those up, even if I had gloves. Those are hazardous material. So it's going to blow into the ocean and be pollution um, and maybe entangle an animal. So uh, think about that. If you are using a single-use mask, that's perfectly appropriate. But if you feel that you're going to be taking it off at some point, bring a bag and carry it with you and take it home and throw it in a garbage and make sure that garbage bag is tied up before you dispose of the garbage bag that's important for the environment, but also important for your uh, trash workers. So they do not get um, any potential germs transferred over to them from your personal protective equipment. So just think about that when you go out. And if you have the option to get reusable masks, I highly recommend it. They're very stylish. Ooh, so stylish. <laughs> yep. 
James has one that has a shark face on it, and it's yeah. amazing because guess what, you all? A two-year-old kept his mask on for 20 minutes yesterday as we were going for his two-year-old checkup because he just was pretending to be a shark the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> that makes complete sense to me. <laughs> So on that note, we are at the end of our podcast episode. It's been a wild ride (laughs) and we would really love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any episode. If you have ideas of things that we can do to be better about our single use plastics, if you have stories to share, if you can think of something like Velcro that you want to know if it originated with some kind of cetacean inspiration, uh, just any thoughts that you have, we'd love to hear them. So please visit our website at whale-tales.org and find links to our various social media handles so that you can drop us a line. Yeah, you can also tweet at us directly. I am at FHG07. Sarah is Sarah K. Given, no H, because H's are in. <laughs> and Nicole is Nick F. Can with two N's. You can also head to our site to subscribe to our podcast, check out our merch, and learn more about supporting us and becoming a patron. While you're there, you can read over 800, oh, wait, 850 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. And of course, if you have seen a citation, we would love to add your story to our library so that Lindsay can make edits in the middle of us recording our podcast. <laughs> Click the share link on our site and contact us on social media, whale dash, nope, no dash, whale tales org, or email us a voice memo and tell us about your incredible encounter. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us. We will be back on the last Wednesday of next month with more fun facts and whale trivia. Thanks, everybody. And as always, have a whaley great day.